what I want to focus on is how uh, do I know that I am me across time and across space. And just to give you a very, very brief introduction of what memory is, because we'll be talking about that a lot more, um, I'll just be saying here that um, memory is an ability to recall learned information and to remember experiences that we have, um, our experiences that happen, have happened in the past. Um, memory is also um, an enduring change in our behavior. Um, sorry. Right, to understand memory, we need, um, we need to understand a little bit about the brain. And um, so I'll give you a very, very brief introduction uh, to the brain. Um, <coughs> here uh, we see the front of the brain and here we see the back of the brain. And if you imagine my brain uh, being split straight down the middle and uh, folded over, that's the view that you get from this image. I'll tell you a few facts about the brain. Uh, our brain, even though it's very small, weighs about three pounds, so that's, that's quite a lot. Um, and we have in our brains over a hundred billion um, of neurons. And this, um, to give you a sense of scale, is comparable to uh, the number of stars in our galaxy, which is probably still pretty difficult to imagine. But, um, Another interesting fact is that each heartbeat brings about 20 to 25% of our blood to our brain, which again, given that the brain is such a small um, organ, uh, is a lot. <coughs> and out of that blood, the brain uses 20% um, of the oxygen that is um, made up for the entire body. Um, so um, now I've, I've, I've told you a little bit about the, the, um, the general basics of the brain. Um, what I'm, what I'm going to say here is that the brain is um, split up in uh, roughly four different compartments, which um, all four have um, sort of a different function uh, to our behavior. Um, and I what I will be talking here is about the temporal lobes, which are approximately um, right um, there. And I'm going to talk about, focus on that because this is the region that is ultimately important um, for the formation and also some of the storage of memory. Um, so then within the, within the medial temporal lobe, or within, the, within this region, the temporal lobe, um, there is a smaller region that is uh, very important for the creation of new memories. And if we uh, draw a line, uh, if, if again, <laughs> we get the knife and we chop my head off, uh, like straight down the middle and we flip it open and you look at me um, uh, from, uh, from a front, um, you get to see um, the, the essential structures for the creation of new memory. Um, so just to uh, give you a sense of where we are, this is the top of the brain and uh, obviously that's the bottom of the brain. Um, <coughs> and these parts are our temporal lobe. And so within this temporal lobe, there you see those nice red circles within um, those areas. That is where, that's the hippocampus and that is where a lot of uh, the creation of memory takes place. So 
So a lot of what we know about memory uh, and, and indeed about the hippocampus um, comes from research on HM. And HM was a was a pa was a patient who had a history of um, epilepsy, and um, at some point his seizures became so uh, often or frequent and so uncontrollable um, that <coughs> medication did no longer work. And when this happened, um, his his um, his surgeon William Schofield decided to remove the parts of the brain. Um, that are uh, so he decided to remove the parts of the brain where which are the focus of epileptic seizures, and these turned out to be um, the hippocampus. And just to show you what that looks like, I've just shown you an image uh, earlier on of what a healthy hippocampus looks like, and here you can see that again. And if we then compare <coughs> this um, to HM's brain, you can see that this. Those black parts here are holes where his hippocampus used to be. Um, um, so back in the 50s, they didn't know much about um, the function of, uh, of those regions. Um, and so they didn't... They couldn't really, Scalfer couldn't really imagine what would happen uh, to his brain by just removing those two structures. Um, so, in a way, in a way, his um, the removal of the hippocampus was really successful because um, HM went from having having so many uncontrollable seizures to having maybe one seizure a year or so. Um, and also his IQ stayed the same or got even better because the, the seizures sometimes got in the way of testing. So, yeah, he, he became better. Um, the only very major drawback of um, this surgery was that he was no longer able to create new memories. Um, and so with this surgery, um, they realized that the hippocampus is very important for the creation of new memories. And um, to illustrate how profound this was, um, his, uh, one, of, one of the people who used uh, to um, do tests on him uh, for over 50 years, um, he was never able to recognize her, so he worked with her for so long, but he was not able to create a memory for her to remember her. <coughs> um, and I have to say as well that he recently died at the age of 82, and he gave his brain uh, to science. So now you've got an idea as to where in the brain um, memories are created and, um, um, and a big question that remains, of course, is, well, how does this work? Because we have this region and how, am, how are we going to put the information in there? And um, to get an insight, insight into this, um, we have to go back to Santiago Ramon y Cajal here, um, who was a Spanish histologist and psychologist and a great thinker. Um, he made immense contributions to the architecture of neuroanatomy 
um, though maybe not <laughs> such good contributions to feminism because um, back in the time he wrote uh, several books on uh, with advice to young scientists uh, to young male scientists I should say um, and um, he wrote in there that um, um, he wrote that uh, he, he warned them against having their career thwarted uh, by feminine vanity and capriciousness which is not very nice of him um, Anyway, uh, besides being a great, um, besides being a great scientist, um, he was also a great artist, and this uh, showed when he was making drawings of the central nervous system, and he he drew the entire central nervous system, um, of which this is um, an example, which is the hippocampus. Um, <coughs> so. In the 19th century, it was becoming clear that few, if any, new cells were <coughs> born in, in the brain. And up to this point, it was thought that memories were maybe stored in single cells. Um, but yes, when they found out that no, cells were new, no new cells were born there, um, this started to become a bit of a problem. And um, this idea became a problem. And um, then Cajal came up um, with, because of all his drawings, he started to realise, well, maybe there is um, something um, in, uh, maybe memories um, are stored in the connections between the different cells. Um, and um, he, uh, the, c uh, the, c the cells communicate with each other. Um, of this, he, when he was making his drawings, he noticed that there were gaps between uh, one cell and the next cell. And so he thought, well, if, if there is some kind of mechanism that can create communication between those cells, this might be a really strong uh, way of creating memories. Um, unfortunately, at that time, he did not have the tools um, to investigate this. But... Um, <coughs> in the last... In, in, uh, over, over the next hundred years, um, people have found out that this uh, type of communication, our strengthening of the cells, is indeed the case. Um, and I'll just give you a, um, a very sort of basic idea of how this works. So <coughs> here we've got um, some brain cells. Um, um, let's call this one A and this one B and A wants to send a message to B and what happens is that um, an electrical signal runs along this, this spine here which is called an axon and if it comes at the end there is a gap here um, so this is cell A this is cell B again and uh, for cell A to give the signal to cell B there needs, something needs to happen, right? Um, so what happens is the electrical signal releases um, a chemical or a so-called neurotransmitter into this um, synaptic uh, gap. And um, this neurotransmitter then binds onto uh, the, cell, the receptors in the cell um, membrane of cell B. And um, when 
this, when the activation of this cell and this cell happens together very often, the connection becomes really strong and very efficient. Um, and again, this is thought to be um, the mechanism that underlies, um, that one of the mechanisms that underlies um, memory formation. Oh, has, have people... Have people been hearing me okay? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> so, right. Um, so, what, I, what I've showed you up until now is um, sort of how, um, how um, where memories are. So, we, we know that they're in the brain, obviously, that they're <coughs> in the temporal lobe, and that the hippocampus is very important for the creation of those new memories. Um, and we've even looked at uh, the mechanism that can underlie the creation of those memories. Um, but really, um, what does that mean uh, for? Um, for our memory and uh, for for our memory processes and 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 really for our sense of self. In other words, how um, how does that make me who I am? Sorry, what, what is LTP? Sorry. Oh, that's long-term potentiation. Did I not say that? That is the mechanism <coughs> with through which cells communicate with one another. Sorry, I thought okay. I meant. Okay. <laughs> I thought I'd something. No, no, no. Please, if 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 anyone has a, has questions in the meantime, feel free to interrupt me. I don't mind. Yeah. Well, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're early on in your talk, so I wouldn't want to ask you about something that you're going to speak about later. But just some general questions that if I may throw out there. Um, maybe we should leave the general questions <laughs> for. But if there's something specifically you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, speaking about memory, is memory something that is physical in the sense of something that has weight that could actually be measured? If one person remembers more than another, does that mean that that person has more, literally more weight of, of, of a substance in that person's brain? No. What, how does, what is memory in, in the physical sense? What is it really? Memory in the physical sense is exactly what I, what I told you, and that is a, a strengthening of connections, but nothing to do with the weight of your brain or the weight of any substance. Does that make sense? Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> what, I mean, but, I mean, I mean what, what is it? Is it really? Is it, uh, is it just uh, electrons moving between cells? Is it the speed of the electrons? Uh, how how how, did, how how does an, a, a, a form? Is it just an impression, like a photograph on a piece of paper? No, the way you have to see, you have to look at the change, the strengthening of the connections is that, um, let me just go quickly back to this slide. Um, I wasn't going to go into that, but since you're asking about quantities, um, one physical difference is that um, more of those receptors start appearing on, um, on the cell membrane of the um, of the cell of of cell B when um, when communication happens. 
So that's the only structural difference, and this structural difference allows um, m signals to pass faster, which means that your um, yes, which means more efficient communica communication and a strength and stronger uh, laydown of the memory. Yeah. Well, you mentioned at the beginning. <laughs> Maybe we should <laughs> talk about this afterwards, um, if if you don't mind. Remember. Exactly. You can bring what you learn in practice here. Uh, so where was I? Right. So. Um, a good place to start exploring um, identity um, in memory is looking at people's earliest memory. So what I did is I got the Guardian magazine and it always has, um, has this question and answer section where they ask uh, famous people some questions and one of the questions is um, what is your earliest memory? And um, so I was, um, um, what I wanted to point out here is that earliest memories, people different, differ very much in when they feel uh, um, their earliest memory is from. So for instance, um, Chrissy Hind here uh, was looking through the bars of her cot at his, uh, her grandma grandmother's place in Ohio and she was maybe one and a half. This is very young uh, for a first memory. Uh, then Richard Branson says, I, uh, when I was four, my mother insisted I get out of the car and find my own way home. Although I got lost, I did find my way home. Sums him up, really. Um, it taught me uh, the value of independence at a very early age. Sure <laughs> uh, so, yeah. <laughs> The, the one thing about about this is that um, his memory of being four is quite sort of within the normal, or normal, I say normal, I don't, um, but yeah, within the normal, the average range, I should say. And uh, then the last one is of uh, Speech the Bell, who has a memory of dancing to the song, If You'll Be My Bodyguard, I Will Be Your Long Lost Pal, and she was seven there, which is, again, fairly old. So. Um, what do you think? Does anyone want to <coughs> say anything about what I think their earliest memories are from? You? Very yes. In that it can be dated very specifically. Uh huh. Three. Right. I remember being on my oh, that's a very good memory. <laughs> anyone can top that? Yeah, well, I can uh, top it in two ways. Okay, <laughs> let's bring it on. My apologies. My, my first way is that um, I fairly recently had an injury which uh, my brain was injured and I've lost lots of memory, so I've got no real idea who I am and things. Mm -hmm. So that makes that rather difficult. Mm -hmm. But the amusing thing is that I remember my first birthday. Mm -hmm when my father put a, a chair, a stool upside down on a table and sat me inside the stool which he'd put upside down so that people could come in and give me uh, birthday presents. Wow, that's impressive as well, yeah. first memory. Uh, that's just a, a memory I've had around, well, probably she had it around for a long time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, um, my earliest memory is um, very much rooted in my um, Dutchness, as in it concerns bikes. <laughs> when I was about, um, it, it doesn't actually concern me on the bike with my mum. When I was about uh, three of, I think about three and a half or so, I don't know exact the exact date like you. Um, but um, I, I got this really cute blue bike, and um, my dad was going to teach me how to um, to ride it. And so, to make it a little bit easier for me, they put uh, sort of side wheels on so that I wouldn't fall over immediately. Um, so I remember riding around, going more and more, t tipping over to one side. And when I got off my bike, the, the one of the side wheels had moved all the way up, and so that was really no good. Um, so that I can really remember really quite well. And my dad. I had removed the wheels after that and I was fine. Uh, <laughs> um, the interesting thing is that um, that I can remember um, the, time, <coughs> the times when I was learning to ride a bike and these are um, episodic memories, and memories for an experience. Whereas if you would ask me, um, how do you ride a bike? Well, that would be really difficult for me to explain, um, even though it is something I have done a billion times. And maybe because I've done it so many times, I can't say, because what I do is <coughs> has become an automated uh, process. And um, this is another type of memory, um, and that is called a procedural or implicit memory. So I can't explain um, the the act. Um, so what I'm going to... Yeah. I was going to ask a question on that. If yes. For people who lose their ability to remember, I don't know if this mm -hmm. do they retain the automatic memories like riding a bike? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'll come to that uh, sort of nearer the end of um, my talk, but um, yeah, some in, in, in a lot of cases they do. Um, so um, what, I, what I'm going to do during my talk is um, to sort of um, create a model for you of um, memory and what memory, um, yes, how memory breaks down into different uh, processes. And... Um, and so then what I will do afterwards is sort of um, bring in um, my or identity, a sense of identity into uh, this model. Um, so, um, well, uh, the, the, first, the, the first two that we're going to place into uh, this memory are obviously the implicit memories where we um, have difficulty um, explaining uh, them, but we... Uh, we, 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 can't, we can't actually verbally say what is happening in this memory, but we do. Um, we are able to do this, and then we've got the second type of memory, which is the episodic memory in the box over there, um, which um, is an example of um, how we can verbally recall a memory, a very rich memory. Um, there is a second um, type of um, explicit memory, which I will mention uh, briefly, um, which is um, a semantic memory. And this is a memory where um, 
for instance, part of my identity um, or a part of an aspect of my identity uh, is my, um, my language and my ability to speak this language, but also my ability to speak many other different languages. As a Dutch person, you kind of have to. Um, so, um, so, yes, uh, this type of memory is um, an explicit memory and um, fits, <coughs> fits into the model here. And I will say a little bit, about, a little bit more about it um, here in this slide where... <coughs> So semantic memories are memories for facts and uh, sort of generalized knowledge. Um, and the, the example of the, uh, the language is um, mainly I've got a set of rules in my brain which have nothing to do with my, my personally, but they allow me to speak um, my language or English. Um, and the very important thing to point out here is that these memories are all independent of personal experience. So they have got nothing to do with me personally. Whereas the episodic memories, uh, the, 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 um, the memory of me being able to ride my bike, mm, that's very much um, an autobiographical memory, so that's very much me-centred. Um, and... Um, We'll be t I'll be talking about episodic memory um, in a bit more detail. And so um, the very important factors um, that make up episodic memories that they have a sense of time and a sense of place and an emotion related um, to, to the memory and also a sense of, um, of context. Um, sorry, I'm very thirsty. Um, <coughs> so, uh, for instance, um, I will explain this all to you um, on the basis of this photo of me and my sister um, with a facial mask on the sofa. Um, <coughs> uh, this photo was taken um, at, um, at around Christmas in 2007, so there you have the time. Um, then we have the place. The place was uh, at my parents' home in the Netherlands. And the context was I was showing my sister our recent holiday photos of a holiday to um, California. And um, the emotions, well, I felt really, really relieved and also absolutely exhausted um, because just the day before I had defended my thesis and so I was really sort of quite happy that all had gone well and I had um, got my doctorate. Um, so um, again, for um, for all of these different uh, parts of memory, the hippocampus may play um, a very big role. Um, and um, a lot of what we know about um, about um, space and context, so so sort of place and the context of information being coded into our brain, um, is um, is based on um, uh, research in rodents, and they um, have so-called play cells, and these play cells um, are cells that respond to um, an area in which the rat is also. Um, um, in in um, a, a 
the way it is facing um, and also cues. So if you, for instance, look at um, this little uh, map here, this is the, um, the rats and why here's the rat. This is the rat environment. You can ignore this for, this, for the moment. Um, so the rat is racing around uh, through this environment and here are two spatial cues. There might be posters on the wall or a table or something. Um, and um, in this picture you see the, the, uh, the firing of one neuron. So what, is, wh what I'm going to show you in a second is the rat running around and the activation of, the, of this one neuron dependent on where in, um, in this environment the rat is. Um, so I have to switch over because I didn't want to play in my talk. Um, okay, so yes, so pay attention to, to the spiking of the neurons here and to uh, where the rat is. Um, oh, there we go. So you see occasionally really um, heavy spiking and then place where it doesn't, it's not active at all. So this particular cell um, is coding for this particular place. It's active in some other places, but it, its main um, its main focus is um, th this place in its in the rat's environment. Um, so, all right. Um, and so um, an, an interesting thing is um, that these, uh, these cells actually now have also been found in humans. So we, see, we seem to be making a similar kind of map of our environment. And a nice example to illustrate this is maybe uh, some of you will recall this taxi driver study in London where um, people, <coughs> where taxi drivers were, <coughs> they, they looked at the hippocampus of those taxi drivers and they were actually physically larger um, than um, the ones of non-taxi drivers. Um, so, um, so all these different parts of the memories so of the time and the place and uh, the context, they're all stored in different areas of the brain to make it slightly more complicated. Um, and all these different, so, so um, whenever you, um, um, so yes, they are stored in the different places where they are perceived in the brain and then also worked with or used. Um, to uh, illustrate this, I'm showing you a picture of my friend Mati. <laughs> who likes eating ice. Um, but um, also <laughs> her face, um, her, her face activates uh, my brain in a certain area and probably your brain in a certain area as well. It's not specific to my brain. Um, and the area that is activated um, is sort of um, out on the sides, um, on near, the, near the back of the brain. Um, and this, this area is called the fusiform phase area because it's, it's really well known to be very interested in, um, in faces. Now, 
um, Matty also lives uh, in a place, so she lives in the Netherlands, in uh, Nijmegen, and um, this, um, this memory is stored in a very different place. Um, so this, is, this, this memory is more stored towards the back um, and the middle. So now I've got a problem. How do I know that Matty lives in the Netherlands and how do I keep that um, together as one um, memory? So this is something that I have been uh, interested in during my uh, PhD. Um, and I investigated uh, this and um, suggested that um, the hippocampus might actually be important for the, uh, for the binding together of those separate parts of information. So what, um, what I did um, was I showed people um, pictures of uh, faces and houses, so a pair of a face and house or a pair of two faces um, and um, I looked at what, um, what how their brain um, <coughs> activated and um, so yeah there's the, the image of the two faces um, and what we saw was that when people had to make a, a connection between the two faces uh, there was actually no no need for the hippocampus, so no activation in the hippocampus. Whereas when people had to make a connection between um, a house and a face, um, we see very nice activation in the hippocampus. So that was, um, that was interesting to learn that, um, yes, the hippocampus is important for those connections of those pulling back of different parts of a memory. Um, So now that I've looked at all the complexity of, um, of memories, um, the interesting question really is how reliable are our memories? Um, and um, how reliable, therefore, is also our sense of self? Um, <coughs> to give you an example, uh, this is just a, a reason to show, <laughs> to show lots of pictures of myself when I was young. Um, is, uh, he here I am uh, in my playpen, um, aged one, I think. Um, and I've got quite a vivid memory of um, sitting here with my uh, dog, who was really small and fit, through the bars of my, um, of my playpen. And um, I remember that when I was tired, um, after finishing eating my book, um, I uh, <laughs> decided that it was a good idea to have a snooze on my dog's belly and she would fall asleep as well. Um, now I'm quite sure that this is not actually a real memory. I know this happened for real um, because um, my parents told me so and because I have this photo to hook up my, my memory to, but I know pretty well that it is not, um, not actually a true experience of mine or not a true um, experience of which I have a memory, I should say. Um, so, big question is, are we all making up our memories? Um, because, it, um, because one way of looking at um, memories, it, it may be actually quite closely related to imagining things. Um, and this is exactly what Eleanor Maguire <coughs> of University College London uh, looked at. So, um, 
She had amnesic patients with hippocampal damage and asked them to describe future scenes. So they were imagining things. And um, to give you an example of the type of things you would ask um, is um, imagine you are standing at a bustling street market. And so um, the the patients and the controls would respond to this and um, I'll give you a an, an, um, snippet of what a control said is um, bless you um, so on either side I've got stalls in and it's noisy we have a person um, on my right who is selling fruit and veg and they are telling us that the bananas are on special offer this week on my left side I've got somebody selling China and he's trying to do exactly the same thing um, two for one pound, that sort of thing. Um, for some reason, it feels quite narrow. Uh, then I give you an example of uh, what the patient um, says, and quite interesting to note here is that the patient actually had worked in uh, a market store for 24 years, but what he says is that um, the surrounding <coughs> is very pleasant, it's a beautiful day, there is no bad smells, everything seems okay, everything is pleasant. I see very many people, um, could be almost any market, it could be Petticoat Lane, could be a market in Milan, a market is a wonderful place. So um, you see immediately a very big uh, difference between those two, um, those two imagined events, because um, whereas uh, the controls imagine imagination is very sort of vivid and has a sense of time and a sense of place, um, and is very rich in 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 what he um, what he imagines, um, the patients um, the patients. Um, Im I uh, image of the market is, is completely sort of, it's, it's almost, could be any type of event. Um, so we see that the hippocampus, um, yeah, is um, again important also for the imagination. So just um, to give a, um, um, a bit of a summary is that um, the hippocampus and also connected regions which I haven't really been talking about here but <laughs> let's just say mainly the hippocampus enables us to encode <coughs> rich details of events so it, it allows us to, um, to, to um, uh, encode where, when, what and with whom and these are some of the key elements in our identities. Um, so given that memory and or that, that remembering and imagination seems to be sort of um, quite similar, um, can we, to what extent can we say that memory is maybe a constructive process? Um, because we, we reconstruct the past and um, we may use sim similar mechanisms to um, imagine the future. Um, so, um, now, now that we've got a sort of an idea of how memories uh, are formed and how memories, what, what memories are, um, I want to say a little bit about what happens um, to your identity um, when your memory fails. Um, so, um, becoming a bit forgetful um, 
is quite um, a normal part of the aging process um, and does not necessarily alter your personality in uh, devastating ways but um, when um, memory loss becomes um, pathological as for example in, um, in Alzheimer's <coughs> disease this becomes a different story um, so the most common form of, um, of memory loss in, at least in this country is um, Alzheimer's disease and it's got a huge prevalence um, one in 14 people are thought to um, get um, Alzheimer's over the age of 65 and this even goes up to one in six oh can you see one in <laughs> one in six over the age of 80 um, so that's that's a, a very big problem um, so um, just to show you what happens to the brain um, of an Alzheimer's patient. Um, so here we have again um, the healthy um, brain and also again um, a healthy hippocampus. And if we then um, look at the Alzheimer brain, we can see that well, it's it's become quite squashed and there are big holes in the brain. And if we look specifically at the hippocampus, we can see that this part is almost entirely gone. Where did it go? Where did it go? It disappeared. It atrophied, so the cells died, and um, yes, and what remains is a gap. I think they are the 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 remains of of that cells are removed. Yes. Because that, that picture shows a gap, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it shows. It's not. It's not just gaps um, in the hippocampus. It also sort of the the gaps. Like if if you've got um, a cauliflower, it is a bit of an image of the brain. And if the cauliflower becomes really old and flaccid, it starts sort of showing gaps, and um, that's also what happens um, to the brain. No, it's not. It's not. It's not different. I, th I, th I guess I should have said it's. It, it's. Um, it's um, sort of this much in uh, in the Western world, um, but for other countries it might be, or for for other parts of the world it might be slightly different. Um, we can't. I can't. I can't really say much about that um, because. Um, some areas might not have, um, like it's, uh, in some areas where, where there's more poverty, like in the third world, people might not get to the age. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, of course, um, these, um, these uh, gaps in the brain, um, and especially the gap in the in the hippocampus um, has has huge effects on our memory, and um, and so Alzheimer's disease patients with Alzheimer's disease have a profound loss in episodic memories, and also an inability to um, create new memories. So it starts off with an inability to create new memories, and then it goes on to um, the extinguishing of episodic memories. Um, 
Another, another um, characteristic of um, Alzheimer's disease is um, that it can be profound changes in personality. So people can <coughs> have mood swings or become more erratic um, or more anxious um, and even uh, get depressed as well. Um, and um, I guess one of the best ways of summing up um, what what it is like um, is is done really quite nicely by this commercial of the uh, Alzheimer's Research Trust, um, where um, this lady talks about her husband who has um, Alzheimer's disease, and what she says is a bit of him, a bit a bit more of him disappeared every day. It takes all the best bits away. Then one day there is nothing left. And he said, she says, she goes on to say that I love him so much, I wish I still had him with me. And yes, he is still with her, but clearly he is not there anymore. He seems like an empty shell. His personality and his identity seem to have left him. <coughs> mm -hmm. um, so now I want to uh, go on to uh, a different type of amnesia, um, just called dense amnesia, and um, I've already talked a little bit about it when I was talking about HM, who was no longer able to create any uh, new memories. Um, the person I'm going to talk about next, or sort of the, 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 um, uh, the disorder I'm going to talk about next, um, is uh, dense amnesia. And um, this is the type of amnesia that does not only not allow you to create, create any new memories, but it also all your old memories are gone. So basically you are living in the now, and the now is not very long. Um, so um, I will show you um, a, a video clip of... Um <coughs> of a person who has, who has such a disorder, who has dense amnesia, which is uh, Clive Weir Waring. And he used to be quite sort of uh, a famous musicologist and, um, or well-known in Britain at least, um, <coughs> musicologist and conductor. Um, and at the age of 43, he contracted <coughs> encephalitis and this um, led him to not be able to remember any previous memories or create any new memories. Um, yes, yeah, so um, what I want you... Um, so um, in, this, in this video, Clive is talking to his wife. Um, and incidentally, his wife is one of the only memories that, she's, that he still um, has. But what I want you to pay attention to is what, um, what, does, um, what does this lack of memory um, do to his personality. So uh, here we go. I've nothing to say about this. Mm. No thoughts of any kind, no dreams, no difference between day and night, no sight, no sound, no taste, no touch, no smell, exactly like death. No difference between day and night. No thoughts, nothing. No dreams, nothing at all. How any question, any question how is to answer, I don't know. There's nothing to say. No dreams, no sight, no sound, no taste, no touch, no smell, nothing at all. No thoughts, nothing. Since how long ago? Two years, that's all I know. Whole time I've been ill, nothing at all, no thoughts, nothing. What's it like now? I can see. First time. First time I had any evidence I was alive. Do you feel sort of normal now? Yes. 
So I sat down here. I don't want to sit down here. You don't remember sitting down? No, I never see any human being now. I can see you fully open now. Can you stopped a bit too soon but he says no idea I have never seen my hair um, <coughs> but that was the end of them um, so um, looking at looking at this um, this clip if you if you I hope you were all able to hear it um, but um, yes you ha you probably will have noticed a couple of things that um, he's really well able to speak so that part is is not at all gone um, and also he has a sense of the seasons because if his, when his wife asks him what time of year do you think it is he immediately looks outside to check and um, sort of has um, this kind of sense um, and then and then um, he's he when he's asked about his birthday uh, he said that it's or the birthday that uh, he says it's his birthday and also his brother's birthday so there is still um, some kind of memory and also he has he still has a sense of humor because when he says like his age is whatever 90,000 something um, <coughs> yes that, that's that is funny right um, but still, um, you could tell that he has a profound um, loss of, uh, of a self, of an identity. Um, so, um, to place this into, um, into my, um, um, my schedule or my model of memory, um, we see we we are we we can we could <coughs> clearly see that he did not remember much so his explicit memory um is 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 gone but there was still some sense of self um and for instance later on um he was really still well able to play the piano which he used to do so again this type of memory this type of impl oh, implicit memory um is um still somehow preserved um just a little bit more about uh, these implicit forms of memory, um, which are quite interesting. Um, and um, yes, so w one 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 form of an implicit memory is is, is priming, and um, 
what it is is that it creates a state in someone which will likely show their behavior but which will not um, of which they will not have any active knowledge um, and I don't know probably most of you have heard about the magician Darren Brown um, and I'm going to give away some of <laughs> um, some of um, his tactics because what he does is he uses priming um, in his um, in his tricks. Um, anyway, I'm not going to actually discuss any of his <laughs> of his tricks, but um, what I, w I want to I want to show you an example of how priming is tested, uh, which is <coughs> rather um, extraordinary experiment uh, done by a person called Barr. Um, and what he did was he had two groups of um, two groups of uh, subjects and one group of subjects and, and both groups of subjects um, he gave them words that were scrambled and the subjects were asked to put the words into um, or to put the scrambled words into a proper words um, so like the example I've got over here um, some half of his um, half of the um, participants to this study um, got words that were um, that would read Florida wrinkled or helpless um, and um, the other the others would just get words that were completely unrelated um, to age um, well and um, nice conclusion of the study was that um, all the people in both groups were very well able to do this um, task and they thought that that was the end of that but as so often in psychological experiments that was not the end of it so um, the subject got asked um, to um, once he was he or she was done uh, doing the actual task he was asked to um, walk down the corridor to come and find the experimenter to collect his money for his hard work um, and what the experimenter did is he uh, he looked at the time it took um, the um, subject to walk down the corridor so what he found was that um, the people who had gotten these words like Florida wrinkled and helpless which are very much associated with old age um, those people took significantly longer to walk down the corridor um, than, um, than their controls who had only seen neutral words um, so this is the power of priming um, yes. This, this, this is not actually an accurate picture because he's going pretty fast, I think. Um, um, so, another example of the unconsciousness um, of, or of unconscious memory uh, was done by Edouard Clark Pared, and it was a little bit mean because he had he had an amnesic patient um, and he would um, when when he would see her he would shake her hand but he would hide a drawing pin in his in his hand so that he would actually sting her when he shook her hand so after a couple of times um, this lady with amnesia did not want to shake his hand anymore but she had no idea why um, why this was so um, yeah so even though she she knew exactly that she did not want to shake his hand 
she was not aware of any pinprick or anything. Um, so yeah, again, that's um, another um, another sort of response uh, to an, a, a memory which um, <coughs> they have no active memory of happening. Um, well, and I can of course go on and on about um, talking about the unconscious, but um, I'm sure you all have heard enough about him. Uh, <laughs> So I just want to wrap up by um, coming back to my model of memory and sort of placing um, identity in it. And it's quite easy uh, to think that, um, that what makes me, me, um, are my explicit or my episodic memories, my, my rich memories about my history. Um, but I hope that I've showed you tonight that um, some um, implicit memory remains and may also have a contribution to a sense of me. Um, so yeah, um, the last thing I want to say is that obviously um, memories, it's, it, what makes me is not just me, it's also the collective um, memory of me. So it's not just my memories or my hippocampus, it's also um, my identity is very much tied up with um, the memories my friends have of me. Um, and that was the last thing I was going to say. <laughs>